The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're your nation's public radio source for the news information, tips, techniques, advice, and strategies. You need to build financial independence by investing in real estate and, of course, all real estate-related assets. Today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate Investing. That happens the last Wednesday of every month, and it is the week where I walk in here with absolutely nothing prepared to say. And thus, you are the show. Any questions that you have, whether you feel like they're beginner questions, obvious questions, questions that are too complicated, we need them all, because otherwise, there's just radio silence 877-772-9658 is the number to call in live with your question from anywhere in the United States of America. You can also submit your questions by going to our website at askvina.com. You'll notice that there's a place there that says, Ask Vina a Question. And you click that button and you fill in your question and you fill in where you are asking from and you hit send and off it goes through the interweb right here to WMKV in Cincinnati, where hopefully I get it before the show is over. Again, the phone number 877-772-9658 or the email uh, can be sent through askvina.com. Now notice that is not a that is not a web address. Don't just try and put that into your browser and don't, don't just try and, you know, say Outlook, send something to askvina.com because that's not going to work. You have to go to askvina.com, submit the question there. And while you're there, if you'd like to, you can sign up for our free weekly reminder email. It's about what's going on on the program that week. And it usually has an article by or about one of our guests. Today's article was by Sean McClowski, who was guest here on Real Life Real Estate Investing a little while back. Uh, It's about how to be a life and heir, how to be someone who is rich in money, but more importantly, Uh, Living an abundant life with family, friends, hobbies, you know, all that kind of stuff that you got into real estate to enjoy in the first place. So that's askvina.com to both sign up for our weekly e-letter and also to submit questions. Uh, First question today comes from Derek, uh, who says, I am looking forward to being present for your Q&A show today. 
I would be grateful if you can throw some light on two questions that have been playing on my mind for some time. I have listened to two prominent gurus who are preaching the following. Number one, assignment of contract is the way to wholesale in today's market. Number two, flipping HUD homes is the fastest and easiest way to generate cash. Surely there must be some serious consequences involved in these transactions if you mess up. Of course, the gurus are not prepared to discuss this issue. Would you be so kind as to elaborate the pros and cons of these transactions? I would very like, much like to get involved in the market, but have concerns. Well, Derek, that is an excellent question. I want to start by addressing that you are not hearing two different things here. You are hearing... You are hearing two pieces of the same pie. You are hearing that assigning contracts, someone someone has said assigning contracts is the best way to wholesale houses. Someone else has said the contracts you should be assigning are on HUD homes. So the, these two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, your comment that uh, you can't get anyone to discuss what possible downsides might be uh, is not unusual when all of the information you are getting is from people who are trying to sell you a course, <laughs> because obviously it doesn't do well in the in the uh, in the course sales transaction to say, oh, by the way, there might be some serious downsides here, uh, which is why you need to be around real life investors, which is why you need to join your local real estate investors association so that you can ask questions like this. Um, I think that uh, other than the, the issue that you're not putting the two things together in your mind <laughs> that that uh, you're having here is that HUD homes in specific are effectively government owned, right? I mean, it, it, they were they were taken back because they had FHA loans on them and now they are owned by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And I think your concern is about the idea that maybe you would put one under contract and you wouldn't be able to sell it because there are, okay, back up a second. I don't believe that flipping HUD homes is the fastest and easiest way to generate fast cash. I believe that was a sales pitch. Now, can't, is, is it possible to flip HUD home? Sure, absolutely. It, are there enough of those around that that should be the only thing you're focusing on? Not if you want to flip more than one or two houses a year. So that is a way to approach real estate, it is one of a number of things that you should be doing. Um, the big issue with contract assignments in relation to HUD homes is that HUD does not give you something that most people would tell you you need in order to safely do a wholesale deal, and that is an inspection period. When you are an investor making an offer on a HUD home, at least in my part of the country, you don't get an inspection period. When you have made the offer, the assumption is your inspections have been done. You cannot, I mean, you can inspect to your heart's content, but you cannot get out of the contract and get your earnest money back based on the results of said inspection. You are expected to go ahead and close. Now, on the flip side, so to speak, uh, typically what you will lose by not closing a HUD home is your earnest money which is going to be $500 if the offer was accepted at under 50, $1,000 if it was accepted at over 50. So there are some moving parts here and uh, many more than I, I was able, able to even discuss. I think you should go to the HUD website, hudhomestore.com, take a look at their rules 
take a look at what they say about how offers are made and how they can be gotten out of. And you can look at their contracts. You have to use their contract. And that will tell you a lot of what you are looking to learn here. Uh, but the the combination of the two statements that assigning contracts is the way to go and flipping HUD homes is the way to go. Can they work together? Yes. Is that the best possible combination of things? Absolutely not. And the reason you're hearing different things is because you're listening to two different gurus who are selling two different products and they each want to focus on a different piece of it because that's what they're selling. So I hope that answered your question, Derek. We're going to go to line one and talk to Melissa here in Cincinnati. Melissa, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Melissa, are you there? Oh, yes, is this Mina? Yes. So, Mina, I have a question for you about a partnership uh, agreement. I'm in a partnership on a rental property with my sister and my mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, for various reasons, I'm at the point where I would like to be bought out uh, of the property. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are not able to buy me out at this point. Okay. Um, and we're trying to figure out um, how to proceed from here. Um, and I've, I've documented what my buyout price would be, and we've talked about if and when they'd be able to have that buyout price. And my question for you is, um, is it wise for me to act as if I am already bought out and I'm just waiting <laughs> to be paid? Um, or are there any concerns about me being able to be to lose the property and lose that buyout um, price if I act um, like I've already been bought out. How is the property? Like how is the property actually owned, Melissa? Are the three of you on title? Is it owned through an LLC, a family partnership? How is what? What? If okay, I, so it, go ahead. My sister and I are both on the title, so my name is on the title. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's owned directly. There's no loan. There's no nothing. Okay. Are you waiting for me to shake my finger at you so, and say you should <laughs> never own a rental property in your own name? Because that's that's <laughs> one of the things I'm thinking. Um, and, and so, so, so give me some, give me some round numbers. The property's worth what? Property's worth at this point around 750000 Okay. And is, is there any underlying mortgage on it? Nope. No mortgage on it. Um, but my sister or mother, neither of them are able to buy me out cash outright. Mm-hmm. And they're not interested at this point in taking a loan on it. Um, the rentals currently just pay for the maintenance upkeep taxes and, the burden of the loan uh, would make it untenable for them as well, and they don't want to sell the property outright. What is the nature of this property? What is it? An apartment building? A... It's a vacation rental, so it's a uh, it's a uh, kind of a family owned. We use it as a family retreat kind of vacation center, and then we also rent it weekly. Uh-huh. Um, it's on Lake Michigan, beautiful you know, property. Mm-hmm. So there's an emotional attachment mm-hmm. to it. My sister and mother want to keep it forever, never, ever want to sell it. But we have disagreements on how the property is managed and, and the long-term vision for the property. And I don't want it to impact family relationships. Okay. So I just want out of that to get that out of the equation. Okay. So your sister and mother are completely willing to buy you out, but completely unwilling to do anything that would buy you out. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, uh, you got to love doing business with family. Um, okay. So you, you already said that the, oh, oh and the, the other question is, what is your buyout price? Like, Yeah. So it's a third of the value. Okay. Around 250 Okay. So you've already said that the income just covers the expenses right now. Yeah. So the, yeah. um, the, my first thought was, 
deed it to your sister, but take back a mortgage for $250,000 that has payments involved. But you were telling me that the payments can't, the payments won't come in, basically, because there, yeah, won't, there won't be right. any money to do that with. Um, do you, okay, seriously, just between you and me and the, you know, half a million people who are listening, um, do you really foresee a time when that $250,000 is going to show up on your doorstep in cash? Potentially, yes. Through inheritance and other other things, there is a potential for that. Okay. But at the moment, what you would like to do is for your own mental health and your family family relations, extricate yourself from the situation. Yes. Okay. So mortgages... My thought is that I can at least mentally say it's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have rights to it anymore. I don't need to engage in that level of the conversation. Um, I'm waiting for the check. Um, but my concern and my husband's concern is protecting can they just yourself. quote unquote take it from Right, me? protecting yourself. Okay, so here's mm-hmm. how you do it. You deed the property mm-hmm. over to your sister or your sister okay. and your mother, however they want to do that. You take back a mortgage of $250,000 with no payments. Okay. And you record that mortgage. Okay. You will be in first position mm-hmm. on that property. So if they try to sell it, if they try to refinance it, nothing can really be done without paying you off. Oh, okay. You, you probably and want... that mortgage goes through a bank or to me, like just document it... Go, owed to me. go to an attorney and say, I mm-hmm. want I want a mortgage drawn up on this on this property okay. where I am, the, you, Melissa, are the mortgagee. So you're the one who's owed the money. And okay. my, my sister and mother are the payors because they are the people who own the property. But we will have no payments for five years. And then I mean, you can set it up any way you want. You can say there's, sure. there's no payments for five years and then there's a balloon. So mm-hmm. in other words, we won't have any payments, but you have to pay me in five years or you could set it up as no payments for five years and then if you still can't pay me then there will be payments okay or you can set it up you can set it up any way you want but okay. you, your concern appears to be like i want to say hey you guys do what you want to do it's not my house anymore but at the same time make sure that nothing can happen that would remove your financial interest right. and that's i think that's right. the way to do it Deed it to them. And can that then, if things change in those five years, that can be decide. We can decide to just cancel that, have it null and void, and go back to co-ownership. And things change. Yeah, you could, you could, you could, you could say, okay, if you want this mortgage, if you want this mortgage to go away, the way that the other way that happens is you give me back a third interest in the property, and we'll call the mortgage null and void. Right. So okay. and and you can set up the mortgage any way you want. I mean, I I think it would be fair if there was some interest accruing on the mortgage during that time, but it's family, so if you don't <laughs> want to do it that way, that's fine. Um if you want to if you want to put the pressure on, make the balloon period shorter, you know, say that mm-hmm. look, look, I think 2 to 3 years is completely reasonable. I'm willing to wait that long, but after that you got to make me payments. And then there's okay. and, and then there's an absolute balloon in, you know, name the number, 5 years, 10 years. Um you can set it up any way you want. You can do something that's called a performance mortgage that says, hey, you know what, if you do want to sell it, if you do decide you want to sell it, and it turns out to be worth more than the 750 you want, I want my 250 back, plus I want additional profit equaling one-third of the value of the property. You can, you can, you can okay. do it any way you want. Just get, a, just get an experienced real estate attorney to write this all up for you so that it's not just what we agreed to. It is. It absolutely says that on paper as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That is so helpful. 
Well, you are so welcome. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. If you have a question about any real estate challenge, issue, problem, strategy, whatever you like, 877-772-9658 is the number to call toll-free throughout the United States or go to our website at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it's Q&A week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means uh, the show is about you and what your questions are. 877-772-9658 here in the greater Cincinnati area or anywhere in the whole world. If you're listening to me through your computer or whatever, call us at 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com and use the... uh, response form there. Um, I just got an email as I was checking for questions from the Great Wolf Lodge telling me that we are down to 30 rooms left in our room block for those of you who pledged to come to the National New Strategy Summit on on, uh, November 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. Uh, get a room <laughs> because um, we're running out apparently very quickly. I think the fact that there's a you know, like a water park there and people bring their kids is probably why we're short on rooms but um, you got a confirmation letter it had the information about the hotel in it get a room if you are coming to the national news strategy summit here in cincinnati if you don't know what the heck i'm talking about go to wmkvfm.org scroll down the page a little bit and you'll learn all about this four-day conference there's over 450 people registered already and it's six weeks away so you can expect that 800 of your competitors are going to be there learning stuff that you won't know unless you come as well. WMKVFM.org for more information. Uh, question via email from Tara in Illinois. Why is it that some wholesalers actually do deals and others don't? I know it's a broad question, but wholesaling is a pretty basic concept market and find deals, make offers, follow up, and close. Is it that some people aren't consistent enough in their marketing? They're scared to make offers. It's their mindset. They don't believe they can actually do it. I mean, anyone, even a caveman, can send out postcards or put up signs, right? (laughs) That is such an excellent question, Tara. And it's one that I and group leaders all over the country for decades and educators all over the country for decades have struggled with. Why is it that you can put 10 people in the same room and give them the same information and the same resources. And even if they're starting at the same place, if even if they're all beginners, two of them will really do it. Two of them will never make move number one, no matter how much you charge them to be in that room or how much you encourage them or whatever. And the other six will do something in between. They'll, they might do a deal here or there. They might, you know, whatever. And I think that probably the biggest determining factor is whether or not they have a strong enough why for doing it in the first place. Because every real estate strategy involves work. I don't care if you're going to wholesale properties, which means you got to go beat the bushes for buyers and sellers. I don't care if you're going to rent properties, which means you're going to deal with vacancies and turnovers and contractors and, you know, management hassles and maintenance and all that sort of stuff. I don't care if it's buying tax liens. There's no such thing in our world as a passive real estate business. Now, there's such a thing as a passive investment, right? You can go out, buy a turnkey rental property, have somebody else run it for you. 
that's not what most of our listeners are looking for. What most of our listeners are looking for is something much more aggressive than that. So because there's work and because some of the work is scary when you first start doing it, I mean, do you really want to go tell a seller that even though he wants 115000 for his house, you can pay him under fifty? I did that today. It's scary the first the first 10 times you do it and you're afraid the person you're talking to is going to get angry and jump through the phone and strangle you. And also it's, it, you have to be consistent. You have to do it over and over and over again. And you have to do it, you know, all the time if you want to wholesale deals all the time. I think a lot of people just don't have a strong enough why to go through that, you know, and, and, and it's funny because in the last couple of months I've been experimenting when, when people come to me and say, I want to do this huge thing. I will say, why? And they'll say, because I want to make a lot of money. Well, that's not, you, you could make a lot of money by getting a really good job, or you could make a lot of money by, uh, you know, flipping cars, or you can make a lot of money by getting on a reality show. <laughs> there's, there's, why do you want to do this thing? You know, it's, it's, it's not about the money. Why do you want to do it? And many of them beyond that can't come up with a reason. Now, some of them will say something like, my wife absolutely hates her job and wants to be home full time with the kids. And I want her to be home full time with the kids and we want to homeschool them. And we really think that's important. And I, I've already said, I already know exactly how much money I need to make per year to replace her income. And my why is I have to make that much money this year. Now that's a strong enough why to get up in the morning at six, because you have to go to work at eight and, and do stuff and then do stuff over the weekends and so on. So I think a big chunk of it I don't want to call it lack of motivation because they are somewhat motivated by the money, but it's not enough. It's not enough motivation to return that seller call at eight o'clock at night. Um, I think the second biggest reason is a lack of a comprehensive understanding of what wholesaling is. Like they, they've been taught sort of what you said, which is put a deal under contract and sell the deal, but they don't comprehensively really understand that there's a particular kind of seller that is going to accept the kind of offer that you need to make and that there's a particular type of buyer who's going to be interested in buying that property who can buy that property. And so it it seems like as I as I watch what they're doing, they're just flailing around, they're putting stuff under contract that they're never going to be able to sell. And I ask them why they did it. And they say, well, I just figured, you know, it was half what the seller was asking. So it was a good deal. And I say, it's not a good deal because you didn't evaluate it. Oh, well, what was I supposed to do wrong? It, it's like it's like they get the pieces, but they don't understand how they are bringing value to the table, and therefore they're not able to bring value to the table, and therefore they're not able to wholesale properties. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I actually wrote an article about this a few weeks ago about um, two people I know who got started in wholesaling at exactly the same time, and one of them is now wholesaling six deals a month, and the other one has done one deal total. And they, they have exactly the same information and they started in exactly the same place. And I can tell you that the the one who's doing six deals a month is doing it because she absolutely could not take another day at her job. She was afraid she was going to go postal on her own office there and was very, very driven to quit it as quickly as possible. And the other one, they have to both be women. The other woman actually has a very comfortable life and job and she kind of would like to quit because she kind of would like to you know have more free time and and whatnot and she just doesn't have the 
which doesn't have the why. And, and they both started with jobs. One of them doesn't have a job anymore. So that is a very, very good question. You're right. Anybody can do the basic stuff. And, and it's not like you have to invent it, right? There's, there's a million people who've done it before you. There's a million courses about it. You can just go buy somebody's course and assuming it's a good quality one. They're not all, but assuming it's a good quality one, you just do what it says in the book. And wholesale deals come out the other side. I think it's about the why and about really getting what the strategy is all about. So thank you very much for your email, Tara. It's, a, as I said, a great question, one that um, I've put a lot of thought into just coincidentally. Um, a question from Darren, who doesn't say where he's from. Darren, 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 where are you from, Darren? Darren says... Hi, Vina. I notice you and Drew are partners in your business. Can you explain when is the best time to choose a partner? I'm a wholesaler and I don't need a partner to wholesale, but thinking about marketing and other tasks I don't like doing or want to free myself from doing. Darren, the best time to choose a partner is never. Never. You never never choose a partner as a, as a wholesaler, ever. Especially not for the thing that you want them to do, which is split the work. Split the work partnerships always end in tragedy and tears. I just, I, I have never seen a wholesaling partnership where the deal was you will do the marketing and the take the phone calls and run the comps and I will go, I will find the buyers, you know, whatever the, whatever your, your concept is that worked out in the long term. I, heck, I never saw one that worked out in the relatively short term. And, and this, is, this is what always happens. Every time somebody comes to me with a suggestion, I say, don't do it. They say, oh, well, this will be different because I've been, I've been best friends with this person for 30 years. Or, or I, used to, I used to work with this guy and we have a really good working relationship. We had, we had a job at the same company. And, and, or this is my brother, so I know it'll work out. It's, it's, it's unlike every other partnership you've ever seen. This one will work out. And then a year later, they're screaming at each other because always one person is blaming the other person for why more deals aren't getting done. And and when I say that, I mean both people are, are blaming the other person about why more deals aren't getting done. And you can't fire a partner. Now, yes, I have a partner in my wholesaling business. That is the result of a of a of a decision when I was very young and very green and very new to the whole concept of business. And th- my partner would tell you exactly the same thing. There have been 35 times since we started that partnership that we have wanted to kill each other. And if you ask me, I'm the one doing all the work and he's the one who should go away and let me have the whole business. So, Uh, And he doesn't want to do that because, of course, he gets half of all the deals that I work so hard for. He's not here for you to ask him. So I guess we'll just leave what he would say about me up in the air at the moment. What you want is not a partner. It's a virtual assistant. (laughs) You want you want and it might be it might be a number of virtual assistants. You might have one that's sending out mail, one that's taking calls and running comps and sending those to you, one that's setting up closings. It depends on what their skill set is. Um, you're certainly, you certainly might want to have a, a lower skill one and a higher skill one. You know, I have one that makes one that goes onto the internet and does the rote stuff required to put together a mailing list and a different one who updates the website. Cause that's the, you know, the, the guy who updates the website makes six fifty an hour. He's in the Philippines and the one who d- goes and does the rote work makes $2 or $2 and 50 cents an hour because that's just 
you know, what the going rate is uh, for VAs on that sort of work. That's what you need. If you get yourself a new position where you're splitting the money, number one, you're going to be unhappy. Number two, you're going to be giving away way too much of your profit. And number three, just don't. Okay. Partnerships that do work are partnerships where each partner is bringing something completely different to the partnership. Maybe you're the one who knows how to find the deals, get the deals wrapped up, find the contractors, get them, get the properties fixed up, get them rented. So you're the working person. You know everything about the real estate part of it. And the other person is a money person. And you don't have money and he doesn't have any real estate skills. That's a good partnership. Because it's very clear what each person is supposed to provide and it's very clear what they're going to get. Um, I have a another partnership that is actually with an, another very advanced, you know, experienced investor that the reason the partnership works is because I am really good at the part about finding deals and talking to people in front of a room and raising money and uh, talking to potential investors and stuff like that. And he hates that. I mean, he can do it. He's capable of doing it, but he doesn't like it. He's very good at managing the staff, getting property sold, um, you know, putting up with a zillion tenant calls, all that sort of stuff. So that works. But it's because we we came in with approximately equal, although different experience, and it's extremely clear what our two roles are, and neither one of us is good at the other one. And we do a very high volume of deals. If it was just if it, if we we're gonna do, you know, I was gonna do ten deals a year. I even though I don't like doing that stuff, I certainly wouldn't bring on a partner to do the other stuff. So I can't say long story short because it's too late for that. Darren, don't get a partner, get a VA. And by the way, if you're signed up to come to the National New Strategy Summit, a lot of the discussion there this year is about how to do that, about how to automate through virtual assistants, particularly the Thursday all day that Ron Legrand and Jay Connor are doing. You need to come see that. Go to wmkvfm.org and find out more about that. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. <laughs> Actually, it's by far and away just answer week. So send in a question, go to askvina.com or give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can call in your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can go to our website at askvina.com and send a question through there. You can also still for the next week or so uh, get a copy of our free white paper on how to get started wholesaling. A lot of our questions today seem to be along the lines of wholesaling questions and we have a 25 page-ish sort of you know basics of how to get started that you can uh, order and download there at askvina.com so check that out. Also uh, take a minute and go to our Facebook page facebook.com slash real life real estate radio and uh and like click that like button and like our facebook page where you'll see lots of folks interacting about different things they have for sale and i don't know stuff they liked in real life in real estate in the real estate world and so on um Follow-up question here from Darren. He said, I heard you say on a previous show that Steve Cook was your second favorite wholesaler. Who is your first favorite? Really, Darren? 
if that would be me. I would be my own first favorite wholesaler. So, uh, but thanks for the question. A uh, question here from Bob in Seattle. He says, I flip single-family homes in a rural area near Seattle. On a current project that is scheduled to close tomorrow, I received a claim of lien from the contractor who did the renovations and to whom I made the final payment in May. The claim is frivolous, but now they've created a situation to make me delay the closing. I'm already in discussion with my attorney and the contractor's attorney, but I thought it might be a good subject to discuss with your listeners because after the fact, I found out that in Washington State, I should have had the contractor sign a release of lien agreement before he got his final payment for the work completed. I plan to do this on all future projects. Thanks for doing the show. Even as a seasoned investor, I still get a tidbit of new info from each show. Well, thanks for that, Bob. Um, You're absolutely right. And it's not just in Washington State, Bob. It's every place. When you are paying that contractor that final payment, you need to hand him a release of lien to sign beforehand. And that release of lien should say not only have you been paid, but you have paid all of your subcontractors. Um, I'm very curious as to what his claim on you is since the last payment was made in May, uh, what what it is he thinks that you still owe him. Uh, But Everyone should be aware that any contractor can go file a lien without proving that you owe them any money. You have to go prove that you don't owe them money. And uh, it's funny because this is the this is the second situation like this that I've seen this week. I had a, a student in Columbus who had a very similar um, situation where a contractor had actually uh, he was he had been living in the property. It wasn't his house; it was a, a relative's house. He'd been living in the property for free in exchange for doing some work to the property. And then when the relative decided to sell the house in order to basically mess up the closing, he went downtown and filed a lien for the work that he had done, which he had been compensated for by the free rent. And now the student can't buy the property until the uh, seller goes downtown and basically goes to a hearing and proves, which she's going to have a hard time doing because there was no lease and no written agreement, that the fellow has already been compensated. So uh, excellent point. Um, Always, always, always get a release of lien from your contractors at the point at which you are making that final payment. Because just because everybody's happy right now doesn't mean that something won't come up later. 877-772-9658 is the number to call if you have any questions uh, here on Question and Answer Week. You can also send an email by going to our uh, contact form at askvina.com. A question here from Craig about disclosures. How important are property and lead-based paint disclosures? More importantly, how much trouble could I be in if I forgot to get these filled out on a wholesale deal? Should I complete a separate set for buyer and seller or just forward my seller the completed disclosures directly, the seller completed disclosure directly to my buyer? I'm not an agent and I'm located in Ohio. Well, they're pretty important, Craig. Now, the lead-based paint disclosures are actually required by federal law in the sale of any property built after 19, or sorry, built before 1978 uh, that doesn't meet certain extremely uh, select criteria, like uh, zero bedroom units don't require a lead disclosure. So like if you were selling a dorm, <laughs> you could you wouldn't have to do a lead paint based paint disclosure. Also, sellers who are 
banks and sellers who are trustees operating for an estate, that sort of thing, uh, don't have to don't have to give those disclosures. So if you were wholesaling a, a property that was bank owned or where where you were doing it from an estate, you would not need to forward that seller disclosure to your buyer because there is none. And you certainly would not fill out one on your own because you as the wholesaler have no knowledge of anything regarding lead paint. And furthermore, you're not selling a property. You're selling a contract on a property. The property disclosures, which are, those are, those, every state, as far as I know, has a requirement for a seller disclosure of property condition. Uh, the, the downside for not filling one out is typically on the seller's side. And it differs from state to state. In some places, it it gives the buyer a right of rescission without um, contingency. So in other words, if I, if I didn't get the property disclosure, I might be able to just say any time within the next 10 days, I'm not buying the property and there's nothing you can do to me because you never gave me the disclosure. Uh, in other places, there's there's fines. I, th- I think the biggest thing uh, to, to think about as a wholesaler is the possibility of liability because if the seller didn't disclose something to you that you couldn't have seen and maybe the buyer couldn't have seen, but the seller could not have not known about, you know, like uh, the sewer lines collapsed and every time we run the water, it all backs up into the basement. That would be something the seller would certainly know about if he was living in the property, right? And that you could not know about because you don't live there and the buyer might not know about if the seller just cleaned up the basement before the buyer came over. So it is important for, for, you know, potentially, you know, future situations <laughs> that, you know, the buyer finds out that this is the case and maybe wants to sue everybody involved uh, to get that disclosure from the seller, but you do pass it on directly to the buyer because you are not going to close the property and turn around and sell it usually. Uh, again, seller disclosures do not, seller disclosure requirements typically do not accrue to banks who are selling properties or to people who are selling properties from estates. So yeah, get get it passed from the se- give the seller the disclosure forms because they're not going to have them. Let them fill them out, leave them with a copy, you make a copy and you give a copy to the buyer and have him sign them as well that he received them. So yes, important. Um we got a couple of minutes left in the show. If you have a question, you probably need to call it in at 877-772-9658 if you want to make sure that it gets here because very often I leave the program and get home and find an email uh, in the email box that uh, wasn't there before. And uh, it it's ends up getting put off until the next program. So if you have a question, uh, probably best right now to call it in a question about rent stabilization and it came with a big article that I'm supposed to read to understand the background which is going to be a little bit tough for me to do here on the air Uh, but it says I've heard people argue about rent stabilization but I'm fuzzy about what and where it is I was reminded of this topic when I saw this article recently, could you talk a bit about how it works? What are its pros and cons? What do tenants, investors, and neighborhood homeowners need to know about? And does it exist in the Midwest or just big cities? Thank you. I love your program. Uh, what you're talking about here is uh, what we would more commonly call rent control, Michael. But of course, you know, the nicer name is rent stabilization. 
And you typically only find it in large and high rent cities, typically on the coast. You know, New York is New York City is famous for having rent control. If you ever watched the sitcom Friends, you remember that the reason that Monica could live in that huge two bedroom apartment that would typically rent you know, in the village that would rent for forty five hundred dollars a month on her salary was because it was actually her her grandmother's apartment. And she just was living there uh, illegally because under rent control rules, usually uh, the rule is if you move into a unit that your rent uh, cannot go up more than a certain amount um, for as long as you live there. Like like it can only go up a small percentage a year, no matter what market rents are in that area. And usually if a tenant moves out of a unit, then the rents can be brought back up, back up to market rent. So this was another one of those brilliant progressive ideas that we're going to, we're going to make it more affordable for people to live where they want to live. And um, we're going to, we're going to do that by passing a law that says that the landlord can't raise their rents because it wouldn't be fair just because, just because the neighborhood got super hot. And now the unit that was renting for 700 a month will rent for 1500 a month. It's not fair that the person who's already living there should have their rent raised to $1,500 a month. I mean, that's just not right. And the result has been everything from arson fires to drive tenants out so that the landlords could de-rent stabilize the building and put it to, uh, put it back out at market rents to uh, big fights over landlords who wanted to take their building's condo and sell the unit so that they didn't have to live under the rent stabilization rules. I mean, it's it's... I'm sure it's worked out really well for the folks who moved into their Manhattan apartments in 1975 and still live there at ridiculously low rates. It's it's sort of anti-capitalist. It doesn't make sense that, I mean, if you can't afford to live in a place, you can't afford to live in a place, right? Um, there's people out there who would say it's the best thing that ever happened. Every place in the country should have it. Uh, there's people like me that say, you know, if you let the market take care of these sorts of things, everything works out better for everybody. Uh, you're not going to find it if, too much if you live in the Midwest. I know of no Midwestern city that has any kind of rent stabilization rules. I could be wrong. There's probably one sitting out there somewhere, but not that I've heard of. Uh, let's see. Other questions. Um, this one is from Alfred. Alfred is in New Jersey, Delran, New Jersey. He says, I once met a man, <laughs> sounds like the beginning of a good story, who refused to get an LLC for his wholesaling business. He did not think he needed to have one. I can see why buy and hold investors need to have an LLC. In trying to respond to this fellow, I did not have a good answer for him. Do people who do nothing but wholesale need to have an LLC? If so, why? Well, Fred, um, no one needs to have an LLC. I mean, you could own rental properties in your own name. It's just not a good idea to do it that way. He was right in the sense that the asset protection characteristics of an LLC are much more important when you are going to own a property and particularly when you are going to own a property that has human beings living in it. When human beings are in places, they get hurt. <laughs> they, they, they do things. They fall down the stairs. They, 
um, uh, take the batteries out of their smoke detector and their house catches on fire. Thing, things happen to those human beings. It is, in, it is inevitable. And the asset protection purpose of an LLC for any business is to allow the owner to take risks that will not necessarily end in him losing every dime he ever made and every asset he ever had because he took the risk. In other words, it's it's a limited liability company. That's why they're called LLCs. And for someone who's going to own a rental property, own a property they're lease op- optioning, something like that, the purpose behind an LLC is that if something happens and there's a judgment and it's a non-insurable item, so it's it's not, not something the insurance company is going to pay for, that your losses as the business owner could be limited to what is inside that LLC. You're not going to lose your personal house. You're not going to lose your car, your purebred dog, your bank account, all of that sort of stuff. Now, let me say that's assuming that the LLC was properly set up and properly maintained, that you did you did all the things you're supposed to do. You did the annual meetings. You kept minutes. You did resolutions when you opened bank accounts. You didn't take your LLC's checkbook and use it to go on vacation with. So you you really treated it like it was a separate business and not you. Which brings us back to the question of why would a wholesaler need an LLC since the potential liability of a wholesale deal is extremely limited in duration and it's extremely limited by the nature of the deal. And the answer is LLCs also can have certain tax advantages depending on how you have set up your your income from that LLC. Uh, instead of having nothing but what is effectively commission income, because I tell you what I tell you this guy, this guy that you talked to was paying on every wholesale deal he did, not only ordinary income taxes, but also self-employment taxes. So he was paying, on the very first deal, he did 30% plus of every dollar, 30 cents on every dollar he made to various governmental entities. And depending on what state he was in, it could have been significantly more than that. And when he got into you know a 25% tax bracket, he was paying more like 40% plus. And when he really did well, he was paying 50%, 50 cents on the dollar of every dollar out in taxes. Because other than deductions that he could take, there was no way to turn that income into anything other than ordinary income. With an LLC, you can do your deals in the LLC, pay yourself a salary, but pay out some of the profits as dividends, which are not subject to self-employment tax. You're going to save about 15.3% of every dollar that you can treat that way. So it's not just the asset protection thing, it's also the tax thing. And that's why most tax attorneys uh, would suggest that you operate a true business, a true dealing business like a wholesaling business out of an LLC or a similar entity. So there we go. Not tax advice, but there we go. Well, uh, it's the end of question and answer week. Thanks for to all the folks who uh, sent in questions. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. And also to seeing you at the 2013 National New Strategy Summit. This is your last chance to go to wmkvfm.org and find out more about that. We'll be next. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>